Well, church family, let's uh, continue our worship of our God this morning through the study of his word as Clint just prayed a moment ago. If you brought your Bible with you or your iPad or whatever, if you'll make your way to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to hang out today. And if you'll reach into your bulletin and pull out that little note page, that would be a help. Now, how many of you were with us last Sunday? See a show of hands last Sunday, folks? Okay, a lot were not. If you were here, though, last Sunday, and if you weren't, we had a guest speaker uh, join us, Kevin Cavanaugh, a longtime friend of IBC and a pastor in Canada. He was in the pulpit last Sunday, and he delivered a powerful and impassioned message that resonated with us as he alerted us to the, tr- to the tremendous crisis that his country is facing as the, uh, as the LGBTQ agenda advances in unprecedented ways into the lives and the laws and the schools and really into every aspect of Canadian culture. And then he told us, and this was kind of the, kind of the thing that really rocked a number of you, He told us that we in the U.S., from his perspective, face a crisis that is every bit as perilous uh, as the one in Canada as we are entertaining as a a nation, H.R. 5, which is the so-called Equality Act, which is presently under consideration in Washington, D.C. He told how the Lord had thrust him into a very high-profile, upfront role in the crisis in his own country of Canada, a role that he said he would never have chosen for himself, if you recall. And he told how this battle was so big that no one person or group could really fight it. And so he took us, if you recall, to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 last Sunday morning, because this is where he found himself drawing his own strength and courage from, reminding us of ancient Judah as it faced an immensely great army that was coming against it to destroy it. And he told how Judah's king Jehoshaphat did the only thing that he could do in the advance of this this army, and that was to cry out to the Lord. And and so he called his people to, to do the same, to fast and to pray. And God heard their cry. And he said to Judah and to the king, he said, this battle is mine. You won't have to fire a single arrow. Stop being afraid. Take your stand. Never never take your eyes off of me and watch what I will do to this vast army that threatens you. And what did the Lord do out of 2 Chronicles chapter 20? Well, he caused a great confusion within this advancing army, so much so that the soldiers in the army turned on one another and literally slaughtered each other right down to the last man. In fact, the chapter ends with Judah going out and for three days picking up the spoils of that, of that slaughter. God really did respond. God said, the battle's not yours, the battle is mine. And Kevin's message last Sunday was an impassioned call to stand firm in the face of advancing cultural, moral decline and in, our, in, our own place, in our own place, in our own country, And judging from your responses, because I've had numerous conversations since last Sunday, you took what Kevin was saying to heart. All the time that Kevin was speaking last Sunday, I kept hearing in my own mind, in my own heart, two words, salt and light, salt and light, salt and light. Jesus said, be salt and light in your time, in your community, in your culture. And so the thought occurred to me, you know, if this is what I'm thinking, I'm no different than the church family that I'm a part of. My guess is that many of you are probably thinking the same thing, salt and light. And that prompted me on the heels of last Sunday to conclude that our series, our little series called Summertime Songs, hanging out in the Psalms, well, that series could wait. It could wait, and, and we would just spend some time this morning 
with Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus' words and bring the challenge from last Sunday forward for another week, different and yet similar in its focus and its content. Your Bible is open to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Let me begin with verse 13, which Rob read for us a little bit earlier in the hour. These words come from Jesus' well-known Sermon on the Mount. Verse 13. We'll put this up on the screen for you as well. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together, church, before we step into this marvelous piece of God's word. And, and it is your word, Heavenly Father, that we're about to break open. And, and because that is true, we, we so want you to be the one who takes us into this space. By your spirit who inspired Matthew, we just ask you to release the truth of your word. And Father, my prayer, my heartfelt prayer is that I would simply be privileged to be a mouthpiece for you today, but that you would do the talking, that you would take your people where you want to go and you would put before them what you want them to hear. Let me just be your voice. I'm honored to do that. We're here to listen. We're here to learn. But we want to do, not just hear, but do what your word says. All glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. A Peanuts cartoon once showed Peppermint Patty talking to Charlie Brown. And she says, guess what, Chuck? The first day of school and I got sent to the principal's office. It was your fault, Chuck. And Charlie Brown says, my fault? How could it be my fault? To which Patty says, well, you're my friend, aren't you, Chuck? You should have been a better influence on me. It is your fault. <laughs> and, and can't you just hear Charlie Brown saying, as he did so often, oh, good grief, right? Good grief. Well, obviously, Patty has some personal responsibility, confusion issues to work out in her life. But even so, she did speak some truth. She was right in thinking that we should be good, positive, helpful influences on those that are around us, that are in our circle of relationship and that we bump up against in the course of doing life. This is true, right? We should be positive influences, good influences on those around us. Are you agreed with me on that? Sure. And especially so should that be true of us who, who claim to be devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are public about our faith at all, if we are not shy about claiming our allegiance to Jesus and we don't hide our Christianity or our devotion to God or to his word, if we are out there with all of that, we should be influencers for good in all of our relationships and by extension, Influencers for good in our culture as well. A Christian living conspicuously and unashamedly for Jesus should attract attention. Would you agree? We ought to attract attention in a positive way most of the time. Sometimes it'll be negative, but most of the time, positive influencers. Influencers for good. Because people are watching us. If they know we love Jesus, if we're Pursuing Jesus, they're watching. All the time, they're watching. Maybe you've heard the story of the pastor who was making a wooden trellis to support a climbing vine on the side of his house. And as he was hammering away, he noticed that a little boy had walked up and was just standing there watching him work. 
And the little boy didn't say a word. And so the pastor kept on working, thinking that soon the little boy would get bored and he would just wander off. But he didn't leave. He just stayed there. And so the pastor began to think, well, maybe maybe he's pleased with my work and he's admiring it. And so he says to the little boy, young fellow, are you trying to pick up some, some pointers on woodworking? And there was this long pause. The little boy said, no, sir. I just am waiting to hear what a preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. <laughs> right? Watching. All the time we're being watched. You know, if we name the name of Jesus and we bind ourselves to the word of God and the God of the word, we're going to be watched. And we are, by virtue of that, influencing others. Every day, if we are with others, every lover of the Lord Jesus is a preacher. I'm not the only preacher in this room. You're a preacher too. Every day with the way that you live your life, you are preaching sermons and people are being influenced by what you're preaching. Not necessarily with your words, but with your actions, possibly with your words, but most definitely with your actions. You and I are preaching every day to people. What do they hear? What do they see? What do they observe as they observe you and me? Whether for good or for ill, positively or negatively, we are influencing others as a Christian. You are, I am. And it's because this is true, church family, that Jesus says what he does in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Now, before we dive into what Jesus actually says, there are a few things that we should just keep in mind to help us as we get into this passage. And I've, wrote, I've written those things down for you there on your note page. Are you with me there where it says uh, things to bear in mind? Well, let's take a look at those real quick before we step into the text full on. First, let me just ask you this. I know you already know the answer. What are all careful students of God's word always aware of? What are they aware of? Context. Absolutely. Context. As I already mentioned, these verses are part of Jesus' very famous Sermon on the Mount, which takes up all of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so verses 13 to 16 are just a part. They're an important part, but they're still only a part of something much larger than themselves. And so if we want to understand these verses, well, we want to understand the larger context that they fit into. We get in trouble when we just yank something out of its context and make it say what we want it to say. That happens a lot. We don't do that. We try not to do that here. It's not hard to figure out what the big context is in this particular section of God's word. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount preaches this sermon to his listeners to tell them how anyone who is a part of God's kingdom is to live. It's all about living for the Lord as one who is a part of his kingdom. So, so kingdom people, which is what you and I are, brothers and sisters, how are we to live our lives day in, day out, before God, before one another, before an unbelieving uh, community that we're a part of and a larger context of our culture? How are we to live? Well, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Were we to take a survey of chapters 5, 6, and 7, we would discover that Jesus takes us into all kinds of places where we do life on a regular basis. He'll take us into the places where we battle with anger. And he'll tell us, here's how you really should live. If you're following me seriously, here's how you'll address the anger issues in your life. He'll take us into our thought life and say, what are you thinking about? Here's what you should think about. He'll talk about our marriages. He'll deal with our enemies and our, 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 our tendency to maybe want to get revenge if we've been hurt by someone. He'll talk about being generous with our material resources. He's going to include that in his sermon. We've been given a lot from the Lord. How do we share that with other people? He'll talk about our prayer life. And he'll talk about those places where we would tend to worry and fret. He'll spend time talking about that. And he has several other places that he goes in 5, 6, and 7. 
We are kingdom people, and Jesus is telling us what a life lived well for him looks like in this sermon. So he sets all of that up when he introduces us to verses 13 to 16. And he introduces two very common, everyday, ordinary items that we are very familiar with. What are those two items? Salt and light. And he's going to take these two ordinary items and transform them into powerful spiritual metaphors in order to make a point. The point, kingdom people influence others. For me, that's his point. Kingdom people influence others for me. Or at least they should be doing that. Jesus in us should influence others who are not yet part of his kingdom. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt and light. That's what you are. Now, because we live in the 21st century and not the 1st century, the significance of salt and light can easily be lost on us. For most of us, salt is just this little container of white stuff that sits on our dinner table. That's salt for us. But in Jesus' day, salt, its place in daily life was really big. It was huge. For example, in Jesus' day, there were few things that were more valuable to people than salt. You would say, oh, it'd be gold and silver. No, it was salt. Roman soldiers regularly received their military pay not in coins, but in salt. Because they could both use that and they could also sell it. Which, by the way, is where a phrase that you've probably heard comes from. He's not worth his what? He's not worth his salt. That comes right out of Jesus' day. What does it mean? Well, it means that a a worker was poor, a soldier was lazy. He wasn't worth the salt that he was getting paid. Very valuable, very important, central to the lives of the people in Jesus' day. We don't appreciate that, but we need to be aware of that as we come to this passage. And, of course, in Jesus' time, there were no power stations. There were no electric grids to talk about. There weren't even flashlights. All that stuff was, that was completely unimaginable for them. So for Jesus' listeners, the impact of even one small flame from an oil lamp on a dark night, well, that was hugely important. That was very important and appreciated. As Jesus speaks to us, let's remember these two items, which are so common and relatively insignificant to us today. Man, they were a big deal in Jesus' day. You want to know that coming in. Another thing worth noting before we dive into these verses has to do with our identity. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that his kingdom people are kind of like salt or even that they will be light someday in the future. He says, you are what? Salt. You are light. This is who we are, Jesus says. In some respects, this is our identity. This is our our job description as followers of Jesus. The day that you and I came to that place of truly trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior, we stopped trusting in ourselves, stopped trusting in our good effort to try to somehow impress God and win our, our place in heaven. We just admitted, man, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. He died for me. He rose from the dead. I've trusted him to pay the sin debt that I could never pay. The moment that we did that, whenever that happened in your life, Jesus says, on that day, you became salt and light. You are Salt, you are light. You, my devoted followers, and no others are the salt and the light in this sinful world. I don't have a backup plan. You're it. We don't want to miss that. This is our identity being talked about here. One last thing not to miss from Jesus' words. 
Apparently, we can choose not to live out what we are. Salt and light both have specific roles to fulfill. They are to influence what they are around. But while it's our calling to be influencers, Jesus implies here in these verses that we can fail to live out what we are. We can choose not to be what we are. Salt that isn't salty, light that doesn't shine. Jesus says, my dear Christian, you are different from anyone else in the world who does not know me. You have a responsibility to be what, what you are for my sake, for, for your sake, for their sake. Be salt. Be light. Okay, then. These five observations made, now we've jotted them down. Let's have a closer look at these two metaphors that Jesus likens us to. Starting with verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, my guess is that you can't spend very much time around the church and not be exposed to this statement. You're going to hear it sooner or later, either in a sermon or in a song or whatever. But it's really the second half of this sentence that unlocks for us what Jesus is thinking about. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Because to us, it doesn't really make sense to say that salt has lost its saltiness, does it? That doesn't really resonate with us. Technically speaking, the element that we call salt, sodium chloride, can only be what? It can only be salty. That's all it is. It's, it's salt. So what is, what's going on here? Well, here's where a little bit of history from Jesus' day is a great help to us. In Jesus' time, most salt came from evaporated mineral deposits either along the shore of a marsh or maybe from the rocks around the Dead Sea. And this salt was rarely pure salt. It wasn't the, the highly processed, pure white stuff that you and I have on our kitchen table. First century salt contained varying amounts of, of minerals, impurities, contaminants. And so this being the case, depending on how much contaminant there was in the salt, the salt could be said to have what? lost its saltiness. It makes sense. In fact, sometimes unscrupulous merchants would purposely take their pure salt and mix it with white gypsum. That way they could get a lot more profit out of their, their salt by, by diluting it, by contaminating it. It looks like pure salt, but it really isn't. And so when the contamination got so bad, the only thing that the the woman of the house could do with that salt was what? Throw it out. As Jesus says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Why? Because the salt was no longer really salty. Kind of looked like salt, but it wasn't salty. And so in other words, Jesus is thinking about us, his followers, and speaking to the issue of just how pure, how undiluted and uncontaminated by this sinful world we really are. The more we look like Jesus, the more we reflect the character of Jesus, the more we do the things that he mentions in his Sermon on the Mount, and by extension the larger uh, expanse of all of God's word, the more salty we're going to be. But turn that around, flip that over, and the opposite is also true. The more that the values of a fallen world, the practices of our sinful culture are taken into our lives, adopted and tolerated, the less distinction there is between us and the world that we live in. We begin to lose our saltiness. The less influence we're going to have for Jesus' sake. We're not salty. He is, in a sense, asking us here. He's asking you. He's asking me. Does your life, do your choices, your actions, the way you live and think and talk and reflect, and, and, and do those things accurately reflect who you, came to, who you claim to belong to? You claim to belong to me. 
Does your life, do your choices, your actions, do they reflect that? Are you salty? Are you salty? Now, I don't know when the last time you were ever asked how salty you were, but I'm asking you this morning, how salty are you? How different from your world are you? Jesus asks, are you really salty? Because the bottom line is this, real salt influences whatever it comes in contact with. Would you agree with that? Yeah. When it doesn't influence, it must be because it's contaminated or it's diluted in some way because salt is going to be salty. Same with you and me. A fully devoted follower of Jesus is going to have an influence. And in much the same way that salt influences whatever it touches, what might Jesus be thinking? Well, near the bottom of your page, let's think about three obvious ways that salt exerts its influence. First, salt adds what? It adds flavor. Yeah. Now, as a, as a general rule, church family, it's a not a good idea for me to hang out in the kitchen. My own kitchen or especially your kitchen. That would not be a good thought because cooking is not my thing. I mean, I, I can clean up okay, but man, I am not a, a good cook. In fact, I tend to be a great ancient Israelite in that I can make burnt offerings pretty well, but I can't cook. And yet even though I cannot cook, I do know the value of salt. Salt by itself doesn't taste very good. When you have a bad sore throat and you gargle with salt water, what's your first thought? <laughs> You're all sticking your tongues out. We've all been there. We know, right? It, salt by itself is an ugh. It's ugh. It, but, but salt, when it's applied to food in right measure, it has this amazing power to be able to unleash the flavor of the food. And I've, I've, I've have dined with a number of you, and I've been amazed at how much salt some of you put on your food. <laughs> it's incredible to me how much you love salt on your food. I think, how in the world do you keep your blood pressure in check when you're doing that? But that aside, as Christians, we are God's seasoning in the world. We are God's seasoning in the world. Just as salt adds tremendously to the flavor of food and fires the taste buds up, so too we can make life more tasty for folks. More depth, more substance, more perspective, more purpose, more peace, more joy, more thankfulness. The, the real substance of life, which is spiritual, we bring that to the table. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it how? abundantly I love that word John 10 10 have it abundantly not sparingly not boringly the joy of the Lord is our strength Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 8 10 the joy of the Lord is also this this salty flavoring that we bring to the table of life we can enhance people's lives by being what we are and I would just ask is that true of you is that true of me to do we really enhance the, the lives of others as they come in contact with us? I hope so. A second way salt influences is as a preservative. Salt prevents decay. And this is probably the thought that Jesus has in mind, is this thought. People in Jesus' day didn't have refrigerators, did they? They did not. Anything that they wanted to keep for any length of time had to be salted. And if they salted their meat, for example, man, they could keep that meat for a long time, months. But if they didn't salt a piece of meat, well, in a matter of just a couple of days, it began to, to rot, didn't it? It began to smell. Yeah. Used in this way, salt doesn't necessarily make something taste great, but it, it does keep it from going bad. Fellow Christian, we are, according to Jesus here, to be a moral preservative in our culture, in our time. And I believe this is really what Pastor Kevin last week was trying to, to say to us. We are called to be that, a moral preservative. God, through faith in Jesus, calls us to himself 
But isn't it interesting that God doesn't call us out of the world when he calls us to himself? In fact, he, he, he fully expects us to stay in this spiritually dark world. He calls us to live in it. He calls us to live where sin abounds and evil increases. He calls us to live boldly in a culture that just seems, seems bent on finding new ways to do evil. God has us in this world to in some measure hold back the decay. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yeah, I believe that. And so as we behave like salt and we stand for what God stands for, as we hold firm to his values, his truth, his word, we can have an anti-decaying moral influence on our community, on our culture, a salty influence. Although our culture would angrily disagree, God, by our being salt, allows us to be a voice for moral sanity in this little space and time that we live in, to be a voice of moral sanity, speaking out for what is right and true and God-honoring. Church family, is this not why we try to, whenever we can, take that strong stand for the dignity and the value of the preborn, and we continue to press for the overturning of Roe versus Wade? That's an evil law. That kills people. That kills the image bearer of God. We are the this 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 cry of moral sanity in, in the insaneness of our culture when we speak out against that. Is it not true when we that we're doing that when we uphold the biblical definition of marriage as being between a man and a woman, despite the fact that the laws of our land now say that's not true? No, it is true, right? And we continue to stand for the, the, the biblical definition of marriage. Why? Because we're salt. Is this not why we would we would we would call or write our congressmen and our representatives appealing to them to reject H.R. 5, this Equality Act, which if passed has such sweeping implications for our lives and the lives of our children and our grandchildren. Is this not why we would call? We are salt. If we're truly living for Jesus, we, we knew when we got into this game that we would be swimming upstream and running counter to the moral flow of our culture. We just knew that. As devoted followers of Jesus, we are to be a preserving influence that retards the moral and spiritual spoilage in our world. In our world. Well, that's a big word. That's too big for me. I need something smaller than that. Not in the world, in my world. I need to be salt in my world. Your world. The world we live in. Our little town here in Idlewild. Our county. Our, our state. We, we need to be in contact with these places so that our influence can, can exert itself. We need to be in contact with the legislation that's going down so that we can somehow act as a preservative. Salt on the earth. Third, salt creates what? Thirst, doesn't it? We've all heard this expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you, you can't make him drink, right? Well, that may be true. I'm not a horse person, so that, that may be true. But a little salt in a horse's mouth might make that horse what? Thirsty, right? Church family, when we are truly living for Jesus and we're interacting with those who don't know him, God is often pleased to use us to make people thirsty. Something about us is different and we pique the curiosity of that person and they, they say, what, what is it about you? Why do you think like that? Why do you talk like that? Why don't you do this? And why do you do that? And so we create a thirst by interacting with other people who don't know Jesus yet. Folks may not know quite where we're coming from, 
But if we are alert to the opportunities, we aren't silent, we're gentle, we're sensitive, but we're not silent, we may have what a, what a thirsty soul is looking for. And we make them thirsty. Do you remember these words out of 1 Peter 3 when we were studying 1 Peter not all that long ago? 1 Peter 3.15. In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. You know what Peter is saying? Be salty. Be light. In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Live what you are. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Why do they ask? You've made them thirsty. You've made them thirsty. Do this with gentleness and respect. Salt as a seasoning, as a preservative, and as it makes people thirsty. But in all three of these instances, the salt has to be salty and it must be in contact with the object that is going to influence. It has to be. If a follower of Jesus is not in contact How can you influence? How can I influence? By my life, by my thoughts, by my words, by my actions, I can stand out against the backdrop of my culture and I can have an influence. If the values, though, of my culture and my community have infiltrated and contaminated like that white gypsum in the salt and and they've been absorbed into my life to such a degree that there's little distinction between my culture and myself, how in the world am I going to have a voice? How in the world am I going to influence? I've lost my saltiness. And so our prayer is, oh, Father, make us salty in all the best and most influential ways. Amen. Amen. Make me salty. Have you ever prayed that prayer? (laughs) Make me salty. And then to make even more clear his point that his followers are to be influencers and not the influenced, Jesus turns from the metaphor of salt to the metaphor of light. If you flip that little note page over, verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Now, if you've been in church circles for very long, you know that the Bible from cover to cover uses light as a metaphor for all things God, right? For his person, the metaphor is light. 1 John 1, 5, God is light, right? And in him there's no darkness at all. It's a metaphor for his presence, with his people. It's a metaphor for his truth, for his salvation, for the word. It's a metaphor for his gift of Jesus to us. It's also why the Bible uses darkness as a metaphor that symbolizes sin and evil and the works of Satan. It's a reference to people who don't know Jesus. They're lost in the dark, right? It's a metaphor for hell. It's called the place of outer darkness. The Bible loves this metaphor, light, to point us to God. Interestingly, 750 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, before God put on flesh, God foretold the coming of Jesus through the prophet Isaiah. Here's how he frames it. Isaiah 9-2, the people walking in darkness have seen a what? A great light, a great light. Who's that? That's Jesus, isn't it? On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That's a Christmas verse if there ever was one. That's a prophecy about Jesus, a prophecy about him as the light. So little surprise for us if Jesus would take that metaphor and apply it to himself as he does in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am what? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will, what's the next word? Never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, it might not surprise us if Jesus says about himself that he's light, but it might take us by surprise a little bit to learn that what he says about himself, he says about you and me when we put our trust in him. You and I become what? Light. His light. We become that. Look at verses 14 and 15. Matthew 5. You 
are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Jesus mentions two sources of light here. The first is a city on a hill. His listeners knew exactly what he was talking about. Jerusalem sat on a hilltop. You could not miss seeing Jerusalem from wherever you were, daytime or nighttime. You knew where Jerusalem was, and you certainly couldn't hide it. The second light source, verse 15, a lamp. First century homes generally had one room. They didn't have the multi-room dwellings that you and I are so familiar with. Everybody lived in one room. Everything took place there. And it was evening would draw uh, to, came upon the people. A, a table would be placed in the middle of the room, maybe a light stand. And an oil lamp would be lit and set upon it. It was often the only light in the room, a single oil lamp, one flame. Everybody gathered around that, backs to the darkness, faces to the light. Those listening knew the importance of even a single little flame to make the quality of life better. And when Jesus mentions the idea of someone taking a basket and putting it over an oil lamp, I, in my mind, imagine the the people in the audience laughing. Because that was just absurd. You would not light an oil lamp for the purpose of illuminating a room and then put a basket over it. That would be stupid, right? You just wouldn't do that. But that was Jesus' thought as well. And so he adds, in the same way, just like you can't hide a city on a hilltop and, and you'd never cover up a lamp that you've lit for the express purpose of illuminating a space, in the same way, Let your light shine before who? Others. Others. Others in your church family? You bet. Others outside of your circle of faith? You bet. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine. Think for a moment about what light does. Think about what it does. How just like salt, it makes, it it has an influence. For one thing, it dispels the darkness, doesn't it? Light just does that. Even the smallest light, the weakest, most insignificant little candle flame can chase away the most oppressive, deep darkness. It's as though the, the darkness has no choice but to run before even the smallest pinpoint of light. The follower of Jesus, even someone whose faith is brand new, can be an influencer. doesn't matter how small your light is, the darkness just can't ignore it. Can't, it can't. Think about the Christian. The darkness must give ground to the light. It simply must do that. Does that encourage you? That encourages me. A second thing light does is it shows the right way to go. You agree with that? In the days before GPS satellites, coastlines were dotted with what? They were dotted with lighthouses. How did you know that? Well, you just knew that, right? The lighthouses showed the mariners the way. Without those lights, the the ships would never make it safely into the harbor. They might crash on the rocky shoreline. When we live out our faith, fellow Christian, before our family, our friends, our neighbors, our community, our classmates, our, our, our co-workers, our culture, our life can point. It can guide others to what is true and what is right. Just as his manner of life, just as Jesus' manner of life and his words and his death and his resurrection illuminated the way out of spiritual darkness for you and me. So we, by the way we live and think and talk, we can illuminate the way out of the darkness, maybe, for some who don't know Jesus yet. We can point the way. But we've got to be a light to do that. Third, light reveals what's already there. Light reveals things that are there, but were hidden by the darkness. Do you know these verses? John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In Jesus was life, 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not what? Overcome it. Life in Jesus. Amen? Life in Jesus. Spiritual darkness tries to keep that truth hidden. But when Jesus came, there was no way that darkness could remain where it was. Jesus rolled it back. And in the same sense, Jesus says, here you are. You have the truth of me. You're the light in your culture, in your time. You roll back the darkness by the way that you live. It reveals what's already there. We get to reveal Jesus in the same way that you can't hide a city and you'd never cover up a lamp. Let your light shine before others so that they, what church? They see your good works. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't say so that they hear your good words. They see your good works and they give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Notice where Jesus places the emphasis. It's on our works, not our words. Words are important, but it's our works. They see your good works. In other words, living out Jesus' character, living out his values, acting like he would act, that creates the opportunity to bring God his truth, his son into the darkest place and illuminate maybe someone's life. When the love that he has for us is intentionally released by us into the lives of others, when good works and acts of kindness mark us, we're going to influence people. We are. Some are going to love us. Some aren't. That's okay. That's not our responsibility. We just need to what? Shine. We need to shine. Is my life, is your life in Jesus reflecting more than than this world has to offer? By your life, are you showing the world something better? He's saved us from hell. He's paid our sin debt that we could never pay. He's changed our hearts, given us hope, put his love in us, given us joy, set our feet on a rock that can't be moved. He's given us heaven. Ephesians 5.8, the Apostle Paul says, For at one time you were darkness. You were darkness. You were lost. But now you are what? You are light. In the Lord, walk as children of light. How do we do that, church? How do we do that? How do we increase our influence as salt? How do we become more salty? How do we become brighter? On your study page, three thoughts for us as we would wrap things up. Unleash your difference. Unleash your difference. Salt has to be salty in order to be potent. Light has to be bright in order for it to light up a room. So too you and me. Let's not be embarrassed. Let's not be afraid. Let's not be ashamed to be different than the objects that we want to influence. Let's not do that. Let's not, let's not cower back in the corner and, and be apologetic for being a Christian. Let's be out there. We need to be okay with being different for Jesus' sake. That's how we're going to influence We can't be bland salt and dull light and expect to influence others for Jesus. Some are going to like that and some aren't. That's okay. Someone put it this way. I just appreciate this statement. What we are influenced by influences our influence. Now turn that over. What we are influenced by influences our influence. Is Jesus truly Lord of my life? And am I living him out as salt and light? Or has my culture infiltrated my life and diluted my influence, contaminated my ability to be salt and light, and and somehow impacted my ability to influence others for Jesus' sake? Number two, make consistent contact. 
We must touch the objects we wish to influence. You agree? We've got to do that. If we don't do that, we're not going to influence anything, anybody. We must invite those living in darkness into our lives. We must get into their lives. They must get into our world. We must get into their world or there'll be no influence. We've got to make contact. It's, it's so easy, and you know this if you've been a Christian for very long. It is so easy to, to live almost your entire life in, in your Christian subculture, right? Hang out only with your Christian buds. Hang out at church. Do your thing. All of that. It's so easy to live in that world. And so right now, I'm wondering, would the, would the Lord perhaps give you the name of just one person, one person that that you could get into their world. They don't know Jesus yet, but you'll invite them into yours. You'll find a way to get into their world and be salt and light so that, so that you can influence them for Jesus' sake. Is there one person? Make contact. Third, we can increase our influence only if we remain bound tightly together as a church family in unity. The thought here, many small lights brought together and focused, man, they can make one bright light, can't they? We're all little lights, but we can all come together as Idlewild Bible Church and we can make a difference. We can really shine much stronger together than we ever could apart. And, of course, the salt that is really packed tightly has the most power to prevent decay. So our united voice against the moral decline of our culture. We come together as a church family and we speak against those issues. We stand firm. We make a difference. One voice, maybe not so much, but all of us together, we make a difference. Jesus said in John 17, 23, I and them, you and me, he prays to the Father. He says, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know you sent me. Our unity our unity as light and, and salt together. That lets the world know Jesus is real. May we be that. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Do we believe it, church? Then let's live it out. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this challenge from your word this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for being so clear with us. Now we understand it. It wasn't that difficult, but we just needed a little help. Thank you for the encouraging challenge that comes to us this morning from your word. And oh, how we want to be doers of your word and not hearers only. We want to be salt. We want to be light for your glory, for the eternal good of others, for the good of our country. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.